Hey, are you into werewolves, mad scientists, and a little bit of witchcraft? Then stay tuned for an all-new episode of Watch Corner. We're riding this train straight into the sun. Woo! Tune in to a classic episode of Watts Corner on the Seltzer Kings Network. Available on all podcast platforms. Hey, this week's show talks pretty frankly about the topic of suicide. And if that's not something you want to hear, look, I totally get it. I, I definitely get it. So don't listen. But if you're feeling like you might want to hurt yourself, listen to this. Call someone. Call a friend. Call the family. Call 988, the Suicide Crisis Lifeline. You're not alone with this. Somebody can help. Seriously, they can help. Oh, I will not have you besmirch heavy metal, Gavin. Heavy metal's the only good thing England did that didn't involve oppressing another people. Yes. The following podcast contains... Outrageous behavior and shocking gutter talk. Explicit language. Hello and welcome to the podcast that asks a simple question. You thought the band hated their fans so much they were trying to kill them. What the hell were you thinking? I'm your host Dave Bledsoe and this is episode number 417, the edition of the show where we talk about that time Judas Priest was sued for trying to kill their fans. Stay tuned. What the hell are you thinking? Podcast is brought to you by Sully Subliminal, who wants you to know. I'm And that subliminal messaging isn't illegal. In today's market, Klamath, can you afford not to use every tool in the marketing arsenal? You can't. That's why you need Sully Subliminal. Our deep conscious messaging reaches your customers on a level they can't resist. Our campaigns place your message in the eyes, ears, and brains of clients wherever they may be on television, radio, podcast, the internet, in their dreams. Sully has a way to get your message across. So stop worrying about the ethical or legal issues. Hell, stop worrying about whether it even works. It does. Sign up for Sully Subliminal. But they tried to prove there were subliminal messages on this album telling you to kill yourself. Now, I may be naive, but... uh. What performer wants his audience dead? <laughs> I'm having trouble with the whole fucking theory. What are these guys in the band doing? I'm fucking sick of it. I am fucking sick of it. I'm sick of the touring. I'm sick of making $400,000 a fucking night. I'm sick of the free drugs, the free booze, and the groupies blowing me down to fucking dust. I'm in a rut and I want out. We got all those concerts coming up. I know it sucks. Unless... Ian, Nigel, come here. I just had a fucking idea, man. What if, Ian, what if, let's just say what if... Open your mind real wide now. What if we kill the fucking audience? Could I go back to my day job? I could sell shoes again. Just doesn't make a lot of sense. I think I 
like many aging members of Generation X, I'm actively trying to relive my childhood. No, just you. My current midlife crisis is buying vinyl records. Shocking. Shocking. By which I mean I am repurchasing the record albums I owned when I, were, when I was a teen. This one, no explanation is needed. It's one of my recent purchases was Motley Crue's Shout at the Devil, an album that we talked in detail about in episode 381. Indeed, we, we talked about this week's topic in that very same episode. Maybe I can find a rerun of a rerun I haven't seen. This is not a rerun. It's an expansion of something we discussed briefly in an old episode. We're already scraping the bottom of the barrel. Look, I'm doing the best I got here. Come on, so cut me a fucking break, all right? Now, since I've told repeatedly about how I came to get my first heavy metal albums, I won't bother now. Listen to any random episode in which I mention D&D or heavy metal, and you will find it. Stupid The reason I mention it at all is I simply cannot understand how I managed to bring an album with a fucking black upside-down pentagram on the cover into the home of my fundamentalist Christian parents at the peak of the satanic panic. The only explanation I can think of is that my parents just didn't think they had anything to worry about. Can you blame them? Honestly, no. In their defense, my attempts at teenage rebellion were in hindsight laughable. I desperately wanted to be a metalhead with flowing long hair, braces of leather, and vinyl studs on my wrist, shredding on a flying V <laughs> guitar, and wearing skin-tight lycra. But the uh, the reality was somewhat, uh, well, it was less impressive. He's 40 pounds overweight with a Jufro and a small dick. <laughs> wow. That one made you feel good, didn't it, Gavin? That being said, that needlessly mean drop was not entirely incorrect. I'll accept the penis part. It was and is perfectly average. Sure, Dave. Sounds great. No one would look at me and think, this fucking metal-ass motherfucker is in the straw of Satan. They looked at me and said, oh, look at those chubby cheeks and his curly hair. He's adorable. No amount of heavy metal albums, experimental weed uses, or consumption of wine coolers because I didn't think beer tasted good was going to change the sad, sad reality of my teenage visage. So I could pretty much listen to any heavy metal albums I liked so long as my parents weren't home or I, or if they were, I had to listen to them with headphones because my parents may not have cared about the album art, but they sure as fuck cared about the loudness of it. Play anything above a whisper and my dad would be pounding on the door shouting, Get nonsense down! Needless to say, even with my extensive consumption of heavy metal music, I did not become a devil worshiper, nor have I killed anyone or anything, including myself. Which brings me to this week's topic. When a Reno, Nevada court case began in 1990, in which the band Judas Priest was on trial for placing subliminal messages inside their music, encouraging their listeners to commit suicide. Say what now? Indeed, this was the allegation presented at trial, which is just as sad and stupid as it sounds. But before we get to that, well, I get to talk about Judas Priest. Hell yeah! Hell yeah! Hell yeah! In 1969, Birmingham, England, lead vocalist Al Atkins and bassist Bruno Stappenhill, with John Perry on guitars and John Feza Partridge on drums, formed a band named by Stappenhill, Judas Priest. It was just so metal. <laughs> no, it was actually from a Bob Dylan song, The Ballad of Frankie Lee and Judas Priest.
Frankie Lee and Judas Priest, they were the best of friends. So when Frankie Lee needed money one day, Judas quickly pulled out a roll of tens. It was a great song, <laughs> cool song, but most assuredly, it was not, uh, it was not, uh, not even metal. And at the time, neither was the band Judas Priest. Now, the saying Judas Priest is, of course, a euphemism for Jesus Christ, which is the kind of thing that you shout when you stub your toe in the dark, but you don't want to blaspheme the Lord. But even if you did say Judas Priest instead of Jesus Christ, you still stood a fairly strong chance of getting your mouth washed out with soap by your mom because she knew that you really wanted to shout Jesus fucking Christ while you hopped around holding your toe. The saying was first recorded in the early 20th centuries, and by 1969, it was in wild enough use that Dylan used it as an allegory for Jesus in his song. The band Judas Priest spent most of the early 70s working the UK music scene, gaining and losing members like most bands on the rise do, until they were signed by Tony Iommi of Black Sabbath to his management agency. The band's lineup had solidified by the mid-1970s around guitarist K.K. Dowling, Glenn Tipton, and crucially, their lead singer, Rob Halford. The band released several albums of standard 70s heavy rock through the decade before the album Sad Wings of Destiny caught the attention of CBS Records and led to Judas Priest's first major record deal. The band released Sin After Sin in 1977, a fucking awesome album, and it would go gold. And after that, they released Stained Class in 1978. So could you get to the point? I just did because Stained Class is the album that allegedly did the foul deed in question. But I'm going to wrap up with Priest first. Stained Class defined the, sound, the band's sound is considered to be one of the best heavy metal albums of all time. The band's release in 1980, British Steel, broke the band through in the United States, making them one of, if not the, heavy metal band of the 1980s. By the mid-80s, Priest was in the pantheon of metal gods and was in heavy rotation on MTV and rock radio, which put them in the crosshairs of the kind of people who hate heavy metal, and more importantly, the kind of people who looked upon heavy metal as an existential threat to the youth of America, and coincidentally, set them up as a fat target for a lawsuit, which we shall soon see. Now, this is not the fun part of the story. While in the past I've been less than kind about my commentary about it, I'm going to be better here because I'm working on myself. So just know that I'm going to talk about suicide here, and if that's something you don't want to hear about, skip ahead two minutes after the end of the upcoming musical interlude, where I will be back to mocking capitalism, sleazy lawyers, and the idea of subliminal messaging being a thing. I will play a short musical interlude to allow you to decide whether or not you wish to hear that. <laughs> For those of us who are joining me to go down the dark path, here goes. 20-year-old James Vance and 18-year-old Ray Belknap of Reno, Nevada did not have a winning ticket in the life lottery. 
They were drug abusing high school dropouts from abusive families who were going nowhere and going nowhere painfully slowly. On December 23rd, 1985, James and Ray, according to the account of James Vance, were sitting in James's bedroom drinking beer and smoking weed, listening to Judas Priest's stained class. As the two got drunker and higher, they began discussing how their lives fucking sucked. And that allegedly is when the music implanted the idea into their minds that they should end it all. The two took a shotgun from James's closet and went to the playground of a nearby Lutheran church. They sat on the merry-go-round. Ray first took the shotgun, placed it in his mouth, and pulled the trigger. James picked up the shotgun, placed it under his chin, and pulled the trigger. Ray died instantly. James Vance was not so lucky. The shotgun pellets missed his brain, but destroyed his face and jaw. The police arrived. James was transported to the hospital, where he would eventually recover-ish from his wounds, if you can call what happened to him after that a recovery. To be indelicate about it, if you have ever seen the television series or the comic book Preacher, you have seen what James Vance essentially looked like in the character of Assface. I'm not trying to be cruel here, but it's also pretty clear that the character in the graphic novel is modeled almost entirely off James Vance. Now that story, the music, the high, the sadness, the messaging in the music that told them to do it, is the story that James Vance told in depositions. But the truth, as we will find out through the course of the trial, is quite a bit different. And that in itself is kind of America in a nutshell. Before I go any further, I want you to know, I knew these kids. I mean, not these kids exactly, but I knew kids exactly like them. In 1985, Reno, Nevada and Mountain Home, Idaho are not hugely different. I mean, minus the gambling and legalized sex work. Oh yeah, that would be cooler. But outside the casinos and bars, they're just small towns in the Mountain West dominated by Mormons and despair. Growing up in places like this in the mid-80s created a generation of kids who could see the bigger world on TV, but were trapped in the social and cultural equivalent of the 1950s. If you were not in the in-group or could associate with the in-group by proxy, you were a fucking social pariah. I was in the proxy group, but I knew any number of kids who existed on the periphery of social life in our high school, and we bonded over heavy metal, cigarettes, booze, and weed. Ironically, if you had access to weed, you had a pretty good way to hang out with the cool kids by proxy if you weren't poor white trash, which they were. Thing is, pod friends, Eddie Munson from Stranger Things? Not a creation of fiction. He was real, and he existed in every small town in America circa 1985. Ray Belknap and James Vance were Eddie Munson without the looks, charm, or musical talent because they existed in real life, not on television. Now, let's talk about the trial. Quoting from a Washington Post article in 1990, quote, The two young men who shot themselves in a deserted playground five years ago were influenced by subliminal messages to do it, do it. In an album by the British rock band Judas Priest, a lawyer charged today as a suit against the band and CBS Records went to court here. What is, what is this case about? It is about making money, said Vivian Lynch in her opening statement, unquote. Now, mind you, Vivian Lynch, the lawyer for James Vance's parents and James himself, allegedly, wasn't wrong. She was just alighting about who wanted to make said money. The Vance and Belknap family never had the kind of money it would take to sue a fucking record label. And to be honest, they didn't have the kind of money to fight a traffic ticket. But the lawyers, the lawyers in this case, they were smart. 
because they knew that there was a good chance of a fat settlement, which is a pretty solid bet because they were gambling that the record labels did not want the bad publicity of a case like this going to trial. And that settlement would be worth the time and money's bringing the space. And pod friends, if there's a trace of corporate settlement money in the wind, small town lawyers are sharks in the water chasing that shit down. And while, yes, it was technically James Vance who filed the lawsuit. You are technically correct. The best kind of correct. It was his mother who was the driving force behind said lawsuit. What kind of woman was James's mama? Complicated. Overbearing. The New York Times wrote about her in 1992. Quote, Mrs. Vance is seen talking with her minister, who says, The thing I appreciate about you, Phyllis, is that you don't deceive yourself. The evidence to the contrary is provided in court where Mrs. Vance endures some difficult moments. Dressed with girlish propriety in a flower dress with a midi blouse collar, she listens to the story of her husband's drinking and gambling. To the noobs that James's longest period of sobriety in five years lasted only two weeks. She tells of her son's inability to hold a job, however menial, for more than a few days. She acknowledges uneasily that she characterized James as obnoxious and a punk in her deposition. She seems to not have any idea of the depths of her son's unhappiness. Doesn't antisocial mean you have no friends, she asked at one point, unquote. Phyllis Vance, James's mother, sent so much of the documentary Dream Deceivers peddling her piety to the camera, rewriting the history of the Vance family to whitewash the neglect, physical and emotional abuse that continued even after James put the shotgun in his mouth. She pushed the lawsuit not as a way to get rich or to bring about some kind of justice, but to vindicate to the world and to herself that she was a good mother who did not ruin her child's life, who wasn't the mother of an obnoxious punk or in her own words. Oh, yeah, I know Phyllis, too. Because everybody oh, keeps trying to blame think? everything on me, and it is See, not me. That's, where I, that's what I'm talking about. Everybody is down on poor little old that's me. Not, you're not being fair to me. No, you know, a lot of you, times you James wasn't fair the... with me, and, and, you know, everybody thinks I'm just supposed to sit there and take it. Just another church rap fuck-up that will never, ever admit to her faults. From the alcoholic, drug-addicted, degenerate gambler she married to that abused James. And oh yeah, James was abused. Because I know being raised up in a family of 14 children, there was a lot of unnecessary uh, whippings that we got from our, our father. And I didn't want to do that. When he was 13, he was glassy-eyed. I said, what, what are you taking? And he says, I'm not taking anything. So I took my belt off. And he says, wait a minute, Dad. He says, I'm too old for you to spank. You're not going to spank me. And I, the, the first time that I remember, and I think the last time I remember really hitting it with my fist, I just hauled off and hit him, punched him two or three times with my fists. And he told his friend, he says, I'll never smoke another joint as long as I live. And I, I scared him. Because uh, he, he did admit after I hit him a couple of times that him and his friend had gotten a marijuana joint from somewhere and went out in the field and smoked it. Yeah, you know what? First things, first things, it's pretty clear that he definitely, definitely smoked another joint after that. And second of all, I said the same fucking thing to my dad when I was 14 or 15 that I was too big for him to spank. You know what he did? He spanked me. 
You know what he didn't do? He didn't punch me in the fucking mouth there. <sighs> Jesus fucking Christ. Yeah. Whatever you think about spanking, it's a, it's a long fucking haul from spanking to punching your kid with a closed fist. And keep in mind, these clips that I'm pulling are all from the documentary Dream Deceivers made about the trial. And I've got a whole lot more audio from that as we go along. That This, this was on tape. This was what the guy, what James's stepfather was willing to admit to in front of cameras. And if you know anything about abusers, you know that they're very good at justifying their abuse and trying to make you believe that it wasn't as bad as you thought it was. It was just discipline. And hitting your child, your stepchild or natural born child with a closed fist is fucking abuse. Oh, pot friends, I've got more. Here's James' mom first and then Ray's mom testifying in court about the behavior issues of said boys. You characterized your son as obnoxious and a punk, didn't you? I believe I used those words in a deposition, yes. And you have been told by uh, school authorities uh, that uh, he uh, had a history of antisocial behavior. Doesn't antisocial mean you have no friends? Your son was expelled from Reed for fighting, wasn't he, Mrs. Vance? Yes, he was. And he had uh, uh, disciplinary problems in school uh, from the early years, as you testified uh, this morning, with fighting and assaultive behavior. Every time James got in trouble in school, I was right there. I was a supportive parent. I was there to find out what the details were, to understand what was going on, and to take action where action needed to be taken. He shot the cat with a dart. What kind of a dart? That's Ray's mom it's right a dart there. Gun. Sharp dart. That happened two days before he killed and himself. And did he uh, get in some sort of trouble with the authorities for that? They came out to the house and took the gun away. What other uh, brushes with the law uh, did your son have? He stole some money from an employer. And he got on a bus, him and another boy and went to Oklahoma. Why did he go to Oklahoma, if you know? His natural father is there. Ray Belknap was fucked up, folks. There is testimony in court how, how he told many people that his dream was to shoot up a bunch of people and that he really, really wanted to be a professional killer. This was in 1984, a decade and a half before Columbine, before school shooting became a national pastime, before there was an AR-15 in every kid's closet. I'm not saying that Ray and James would have shot up a school. I'm just saying that they, they fit the profile, and that profile is replete with parents who treat their kids like shit and then blame everyone else but themselves when their kids snap and do something crazy like shooting themselves or shooting up a fucking school. But, you know, I can understand the parents' grief. I can even forgive a little bit the parents' grief. What I can't forgive is the lawyers who swooped in. Vivian Lynch, the lead attorney on the case, devised a strategy, according to the LA Times, quote, attorneys for the families filed a product liability lawsuit against Judas Priest and CBS Records, the band's record label, seeking a minimum of $3.6 million in damages to compensate for the deaths, medical bills, and support for, child, for a child dance, had fathered after his suicide attempt. Unquote. Aside, I, I gotta say that that girl must have really loved James Vance because dude was not easy to look at. Now, you might be wondering, product 
liability suit. I mean, they didn't try to kill themselves using sharpened shards of vinyl. They they used a shotgun. I mean, why a product liability suit against the record labels? Well, even back then, you couldn't sue a gun manufacturer. This is America, after all. But you could sue a band and the record label for putting out a dangerous product. More New York Times coverage from the Times. Quote, According to the testimony Mr. Vance offered in preliminary hearings before his death, the two youths were listening to a song called Beyond the Realms of Death when all of a sudden we got a suicide message and we got tired of life. The song, whose lyrics were written by Judas Priestley singer Rob Halford, include the lines, Keep the world with all its sin, it's not fit for living in, unquote. Which, if you don't know the song, seems pretty straightforward. But you know what? There's a problem. That pesky old First Amendment. Music is protected speech because, and that had been reaffirmed just a few years before when the courts upheld this when another parent sued Ozzy Osbourne for their son's death, which they blamed on the song Suicide Solution. That will probably be a podcast in and of itself someday. The courts ruled that the First Amendment protected the artist. So it would be perfectly legal to say something like Dennis Leary said. I say we put more messages on the records. Kill the band, kill your parents, then yourself, okay? So that couldn't be the legal foundation of the lawsuit. But again, like I said, these lawyers were quote-unquote smart. And they decided that there were subliminal messages in the music that made the kids do what they did. The thinking goes like this. Judas Priest, a band that cannot exist unless they have millions of fans buying their records and going to their concerts, something that made them a very comfortable living, decided that they would insert a subconscious message into their music that instructed their fans to kill themselves. Now you, a rational human being with two working brain cells to rub together, hear something like this and say, That is illogical. But in the peak period of the satanic panic, where millions of people were convinced that the devil had risen from hell and sang backing vocals on heavy metal songs, as though the devil would ever deign to sing a backing track, this sort of thing was just the sort of thing a heavy metal band would do. The band, of course, denied this. Again, from the New York Times, quote, I don't know what subliminals are, but I do know there's nothing like that in this music, so Bill Kirbishley, who manages Judas Priest as well as The Who and Robert Plant, the former Led Zeppelin singer. If we were going to do that, I'd be saying, buy seven copies, not telling a couple of screwed up kids to kill themselves, unquote. The plaintiff's lawyers hired experts to analyze the stained class album to which the two young men were listening to. These experts began by listening to the album with a critical ear, and quite frankly, their findings were compelling. It's a very loud noise. It's a very loud, very angry noise. But when they analyzed the songs using state-of-the-art technology, which in 1990 was a, was a computer program that was an early ancestor of Cool Edit, which is now Adobe Audition, it allowed to do all, one to do all sorts of things that took a mixing bay in a recording studio to do previously, like speed up a track or slow down a track or reverse a track, and most importantly, see a visual representation of the sound of the track in a waveform on a screen. And after spending a lot of money, the experts finally found what they were looking for. And here, here it is. I heard the word, do it, the words do it but I didn't understand in what context or why it was there. I identified approximately seven of them. It's very difficult because it is uh, a subliminal level. 
Sanchez. Yeah, that's it. The experts, the well-paid by the plaintiff's lawyers experts, determined that the subliminal message, do it, was inserted seven times into the song, Better By You, Better Than Me, a song not written by Judas Priest, but by the British band Spooky Tooth in 1969 and covered on the Stained Class album. The do-its were commanding the listeners to kill themselves. Pod friends, do you feel at all like committing an act of self-harm? Because you heard this song in the musical interlude at the top of the pod. Are we safe? Oh, I assure you, you're quite safe. You have not been hit with a subliminal message. Or even a smooth criminal. You've been hit by, you've been struck by a smooth criminal. Subliminal, science has proven that subliminal messaging does work, kind of. They can only influence you to do things that you are already inclined to do and then only in a limited way. They can't brainwash you. They can't change your deeply held beliefs and and their effect is extremely limited. They're an ideal way to, say, encourage you to drink a soda at a movie where you've been eating salty popcorn the entire time, but they are less useful as a day-to-day sort of tool to make you, say, stop smoking. And they absolutely cannot cause you to act in a way that would cause yourself harm unless of course you were already predisposed to harming yourself and even then the science is that is entirely unproven because you can't gather a group of suicidal people into groups show one group's subliminal messaging urging them to do it and then not show them to the control group and see who kills themselves because that's the sort of thing a nazi would do Not that this matters because there were no do-its in the song mix. What the experts were hearing is the stretched, slowed, and amplified mix of the song where pre-singer Rob Halford was doing what is described as a rhythmic exhalation, a kind of huh on the exhale while singing. You can say what I only can see. Thank you. The yeah is the exhalation of breath. Yes. Uh, is that a normal part of your singing? That's the way I've always sung. That's just my style. Is there some uh, effect uh, that that uh, uh, has for the uh, aesthetics of the song? Um, it's just uh, the works performed, you know, the emotion involved and the feeling that you give out when you're singing it. Are there subliminal duets? on the Better By You, Better Than Me song? Absolutely not. No, no, it wasn't a subliminal message. It was just Rob Halford breathing. Now, I don't want you to think there were no backmasking messages in the music of Judas Priest, even on the album Stained Class. There was one. I am shocked. I mean, it was on the song Exciter, which caused the plaintiff's lawyer to get very, very, very excited. You recorded a forward verse. You sang in the forward direction. That's correct. And then it was intentionally reversed. Yes. And placed on the album. Yes, quite intentionally. The admission by Robert Halford that they place backwards material on albums is a great piece of evidence. They have denied that for four years, but under oath, he admitted to it. And I think it's the turning point of this case. Thanks, Ken. 
Oh, pod friends, what diabolical message did these servants of Satan embed into the mix? What insidious command did they instruct their hordes of brainwashed fans to carry out? Well, let me play it for you. The backward interpretation, which is I asked for a peppermint. I asked for her to get one. In forward, stand by for exciter. Salvation is his task. So what we'll hear first is I asked for a peppermint. I asked for her to get one. wasn't even a backmasking track. <laughs> it was just what people heard when you played Exciter backwards. There were no backmasking tracks on Stained Class, and Rob Halford never had a single fucking fan bring him the peppermint that he asked for. Now, Priest did put a genuine backmasking track on a song. That's what the fucking lawyer for the planet was so excited about. But it was on a different album, Seven years after Stained Class was released, and that diabolical message was just the song's refrain reversed. And that was all. Backmasking is easy. We've been doing it since the early days of, the, of recorded music. But subliminal messaging is a hell of a lot harder. Quoting from Wikipedia, Regarding the plaintiff's assertion that the statement do it was a command to commit suicide, Halford pointed out that the phrase do it had no direct message to do anything in particular. Not even bring Rob a peppermint. Neuroscientist and Rob, uh, record producer Daniel J. Levitin testified at a deposition that as a practical matter, it is extremely difficult to mix high-quality Malkin track record for, a record for a major label in which the important instrumental parts can all be heard without trying to spend countless hours burying subliminal messages in the mix, unquote. So how did it all work out? Quoting from rockandrolltruestories.com, quote, in the end, the band wasn't found liable for the fans' deaths, but as MTV reported here, the ruling didn't make anyone happy. An 108-page written decision handed out to only to the parties on hand in court to receive it. The plaintiffs and their attorneys, Judge Jerry Carr Whitehead, found that Judas Priest and CBS Records were not liable in causing the deaths of James Vax and Raymond Belknap. The words do it are present in several times on the Stained Class album and are subliminal, but they are a result of a chance combination of sounds and are not intentional. There's no proof of backwards masking on the album, and in any case, no scientific proof that backward masking can be perceived or affect conduct. The judge also ruled that corporate attorneys for CBS were inexcusably slow in providing master tapes for the Judas Priest album, and that, and that had those tapes been provided promptly, the whole trial might have been avoided. In light of this, he fined CBS Records $40,000 to be paid to the plaintiff's attorney to compensate for costly court delays. While Judge Whitehead has ruled that the band and their record company had prevailed on the ultimate issues in the case, he also noted that scientific research into the effect of subliminal messages is in its infancy and that this subject is not a closed issue, unquote. Yeah, that part was true. We're still learning more and more about subliminal messages. But the one thing that is also true is the only people that got paid in this entire fucking thing were the goddamn lawyers. James Vance did not live to see the case go to trial. He uh, died of an accidental overdose of his medication. His cause of death was ruled accidental, but uh, I think it's pretty clear there's more to it, but no one really wanted to look into it. The families involved faded back into obscurity, and Judas Priest continued to rock out an arena, though their fans don't headbang anymore 
our backs can't take it. And I've played clips from Bill Hicks, whom I revere, and Dennis Leary, who stole the jokes from Bill Hicks. But what I haven't played were the parts where they punched down on the kids who kill themselves. Okay, first of all, two kids, big fans of Judas Priest, commit suicide. Wow. <laughs> two less gas station attendants in the world. Which is how all heavy metal fans were seen at the time. Losers, dropouts, stoned all the time, doomed to a life of dead-end menial jobs. And yeah, that was probably true for Ray Beltnap and, Beltnap and James Vance. If they hadn't died, when they died, they were on the road to some other death of despair, drug overdose, drunk driving accident, killed during the commission of a crime. And I don't say this to shit on him. I say it because it was probably true. I knew families just like these. They were already on the losing side of life and the economic changes that started in the 1980s hit these families first. The poor had always been poor, but the lowest rungs of the middle class, which these families were, were the first to fall when you-know-who ushered in his piss-in-your-face economics. And for kids like this, heavy metal music spoke to these kids the same way that gangster rap would speak to a generation of young black men. It spoke to the anger and frustration that came with knowing you were getting fucked and there wasn't a goddamn thing you could do about it. The loud, angry sound that dominated metal gave voice to a rising generation of young people who saw it as a way to get back at least the illusion of power in their lives. It was a raised middle finger against a world that saw them as worthless, and that very much included their parents, who were so involved in their own lives that these kids essentially raised themselves. The only time these parents showed up was to beat the shit out of them. The music didn't kill these kids. I mean, just listen how James Vance speaks when his mother isn't around about Judas Priest. Judas Priest said a lot about the cosmos. So it's like Ethita or Dreamer or Dream Deceiver. Music was this beautiful. We would get power from, from it. And our emotions would just soar with the music and they would go, up and down and up and down and it was like a drug, like a narcotic. And, uh, I mean, it wasn't just this third night. It was always like that. The words, hard to understand because of his injuries, were not words of blame. He didn't blame Judas Priest. His mother blamed Judas Priest for that, but not James. But James was utterly dependent on his mother for everything now and god knows being utterly dependent on that woman as a 20 something year old man completely disfigured and a child of your own must have been fucking horrifying but they spoke of his love of the music and the power that that music had to take him out of the misery of his day-to-day and lift him up out of a broken world a broken family and a broken life Sadly, the music as powerful as it was wasn't powerful enough to save James or Ray because music can't fix a broken life. You can only numb the pain of it while you're listening to it. I knew these kids, or I knew kids just like them. And I know that I could have been one of these kids if things had just gone slightly different in my life. 
I mean, I had much better parents for one thing. But even with my better parents, I could still see myself in them. If my dad had never joined the military and I grew up in my dead-end hometown of eastern Tennessee, and instead of being a slightly tubby wannabe, I could have been a easily been a drug-addicted, petty criminal whose only release from life was drugs, Buddhists, and suicide. The only similarity between the me that was and the me that might have been was heavy metal music. And that's all the proof I need to know that the music didn't kill these kids. It was the life they were living that did it. And things haven't changed over much for the kids today. That's it for the show this week. Yeah, it's kind of a heavy topic. I didn't know it was going to go like that. I mean, I was planning on doing a show about KTEL Records, which I'm still going to do, but... Then I heard another podcast talking about this, and I felt like it didn't tell the full story, which, hey, you can't expect a Canadian podcast to really understand what it was like to be a teenager in 1985 in fucking Reno, Nevada. I, who was a teenager in 1985 in a town not dissimilar from Reno, Nevada, felt like I had some shit to say about it. Sorry if I bummed you out. Speaking of bumming people out, rate and review this show so people can find us and be bummed out that you did. If you want to kick us a buck to support our vinyl purchases, hit us up at patreon.com slash whatthehellpodcast. Now, do all the things Jeremy tells you to do in the closing credits. Otherwise, he's just going to force me to put the subliminal messages in the mix again. And so for me, Dave, throughout the soft and timeless days of August, till now when the shadows begin to grow much longer, let's so. Producer, a token of my unyielding love. So when the winter's mantle steals the earth and all around seems dead and cold, this rose reminds you of a time when all was warm and living. How is this good? Gavin and all the fictional metalheads on the show, we want to say, how evil can a Jesus priest be when they put out a song like this? And we'll see you all. Next week. What the Hell Were You Thinking stars Dave Bledsoe and features Gavin St. James and several fictional minions. The show is produced by Kimberly Steele and a part of the Seltzer Kings Podcast Network. You can find more information on the show on their website, whatthehellpodcast.com, or on Twitter at thehell underscore podcast, or on Facebook as What The Hell Podcast. Thanks for listening. I have no ending for this, so I take a small bow. Metal. He was real metal.